and happy summer to all you royals, rebels, and romantics out there. This summer, we're cruising through history as I share some of the highlights of the talks I gave while cruising through the British Isles. So sit back and enjoy as we go cruising through history. and welcome to this summer special of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Today, I'll be sharing one of my talks that I gave on that wonderful cruise through the British Isles. Specifically, we'll be looking at Henry Tudor, the legend of King Arthur, and the spirit of Wales. So, have you ever wondered why the flag of Wales features a red dragon on a green and white background? Well, let's look into some of the history of that. The Red Dragon of Wales dates back to Roman times. The Roman cavalry units carried a standard known as the Draco or Dragon. After the fall of Rome, British princes continued to use that Roman-style Draco as a battle standard. The last recorded use of this by a British army was about 1250, And then instead of that visible physical Draco, it started to be embroidered onto a flag as if it were a heraldic device. That dragon motif as a Roman symbol catapulted in the 4th century AD as both emperors Constantinus and Julian had personal Dracos made for them from royal purple material, which would make them identifiable to their troops in the heat of battle. Then, when a new rank of officers was created in the late 4th century, it was actually called the Magister Draconium, or Master of the Dragon Bearers, the head of the Draconari. It has been proposed that the name of King Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, or Uther the Head Dragon, in pro- post-Roman Britain may have carried that dragon as his battle standard. So, Pendragon might be a late Welsh translation of that Master Draconium. Geoffrey of Monmouth, whose history of the kings of Great Britain is a standard in the Middle Ages, declared that the Red Dragon is a prophecy of the coming of Arthur and that his father's name Uther Pendragon, in fact, to Geoffrey of Monmouth, meant dragon's head. So the collapse of Roman rule in Britain created a power vacuum on the island, and it was poorly defended from seafaring Saxons, a Germanic tribe of raiders and pirates, who began migrating and settling along the southern and the eastern shores. In the midst of all this, the territory was divided by warring clans, and they were all vying for political control, and the Saxon migrations were growing, and a number of kingdoms emerged. So there was Sussex and Wessex and others. And in this period, the mythological stories of Uther Pendragon, King Arthur, Merlin, and the Welsh dragon are placed. The stories of Roman British heroes who fight to defend the Britons from the invaders encroaching on the border. So the 200 years following the end of Roman rule is actually the least 
well-documented period of British history. And that leaves a lot of room for a legend like that of King Arthur to grow and fill that void. And the time period has little written history from first-person accounts, but we know that there were Roman-style dracos used as battle standards and that that tradition lasted a long time. So I'm going to ask you to sort of suspend disbelief for just a minute and let's let's just kind of look at the myth, the mythological rise of Uther Pendragon and his legendary son, King Arthur. So Uther Pendragon, or the head dragon, might have been one of those Roman British officers with the title of Master Draconum, or Head of the Dragons. And mm, he might have lived between around 410 and 495 AD. His story is found, of course, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book, which was written much later in the 1130s. But he also, Uther Prendragon, does appear in earlier Welsh traditions. Now, I want to quote from that famous Geoffrey of Monmouth account, because he specifically talks about the Red Dragon. Quote, at length, the red one, apparently the weaker of the two. So there are battling dragons and Monmouth is telling their story. So go back to him. Quote, recovering his strength, expelled the white one from the tent, the latter being pursued through the pool by the red one. I will now unfold the meaning of this mystery, says Geoffrey of Monmouth's Merlin. So Merlin's going to explain it to us. Quote, the pool is the emblem of this world, and the tent is that of your kingdom. The two serpents are two dragons. The red serpent is your dragon. And the white serpent is the dragon of the people who occupy several provinces and districts of Britain for almost from sea to sea. At length, however, our people shall rise and drive them away beyond the sea from whence they originally came. So Merlin is clarifying this prophecy that the red dragon will emerge and protect the people. Now, fast forward a little bit, and during the reign of Henry IV, Owen Glendower tried to free Wales from English rule. He was upset about the poverty and about the years and years of English oppression. So he proclaimed himself the Prince of Wales, and led an army against England in 1401. And his standard was a golden dragon. And people really responded to that dragon. When Henry IV died in 1413, Henry V, his son, was more conciliatory with Wales. And Glendower wasn't interested in a pardon. And actually, After the reign, after Henry V comes to power, we really don't see any more official record or definitive places where Glendower ends up, but there are a lot of legends that rise up about him. And within 50 years, as you know, the Wars of the Roses breaks out and England is embroiled in battle after battle for control of the crown. And in 1485, after spending 14 years in exile, Henry Tudor appears, and his 
banner, the emblem in the middle of his banner is that red dragon. So the banner that Henry Tudor uses at Bosworth, the banner honors the Welsh dragon, and he continues to honor that dragon, that red Welsh dragon, when he takes the banner to St. Paul's Cathedral and lays it on the altar to officially give thanks for his victory and sort of redeclare himself the new King of England. So who is this Henry Tudor with this Welsh heritage? Well, if we go back a little bit to Owain Ap Maridud Ap Tudor, the first Tudor we have a real record of, we start to know him, of course, as Owen Tudor. He really enters the record. He's from a prominent family. The Tudors were related to Owen Glendower. And actually, the Tudor family supported Owen Glendower. So when Glendower failed, the Tudors fell from favor. And so Owen sets out, he comes to the court of Henry V to sort of regain prestige and wealth for the family. And we think he joins the retinue of Sir Walter Hungerford, and he became a steward in the king's household. So he served in the household of Henry V. And um, of course, Henry V ends up marrying Catherine of Valois as part of the treaty after all of those glorious Henry V victories in France. And she immediately successfully fulfills her duty as a royal consort when she gives birth to a baby boy, a healthy baby boy, of course, named Henry, in December of 1421. And so things look great at that point. But by August of 1422, everything has changed. Henry V has died. And after his death, of course, the baby is the new king, Henry VI. He's an infant. And so naturally, his mother has custody of him and ends up being able to be quite influential in what happens around the king. And the council becomes very suspicious of her. She's a young woman. She's probably going to get married again. And whomever she marries will have way too much influence over the king. So the council passes a law that she can't marry anyone without the permission of the king, and he is currently an infant. It's possible that in response to this, Catherine thinks, well, as long as I don't marry somebody of political importance, it won't matter. Perhaps marrying a servant then won't bother anybody. And there are lots of legends about how Catherine of Valois and Owen Tudor meet. There's one legend that he's dancing so effectively and so energetically that he falls and ends up with his head in her lap. There's another legend that he's swimming nude and she happens upon the swimming hole. In any case, they are married sort of secretly and they do leave court. We know they have three sons and one daughter that we know about, possibly more children, but these are the ones we know about. And the sons are Edmund, Jasper, and Edward, and the daughter's name is Margaret. And Edmund and Jasper become the two who play a really prominent role in the future of the English monarchy. 
So once Henry comes to the throne, Henry VI comes to the throne as an infant, and his uncles are sort of keeping the government going. And after Catherine of Valois, with whom Henry continues to have a good relationship, after she dies in 1437, Henry brings two of his half-brothers to court. So he brings Edmund and Jasper to court. He makes Edmund Tudor, the Earl of Richmond, and Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Pembroke. And they become really close advisors of the king. And in fact, in 1453, the king gives the wardship of Margaret Beaufort, one of the wealthiest heiresses in the whole country, a descendant of John of Gaunt. So she is a real prize. And he gives the wardship of this little girl to Edmund Tudor, who, of course, fairly quickly marries her when she's only 12. The marriage is consummated quickly. Margaret becomes pregnant, and Edmund ends up dying within a year. So now we have 13-year-old Margaret Beaufort Tudor. She's pregnant, and she goes to Jasper in his stronghold at Pembroke, and the Wars of the Roses is going on all of this time. So it is a very frightening, a very violent, a very dangerous time. And in the midst of that, this baby is born at Pembroke Castle on the 28th of January, 1457. He was probably baptized right there at St. Mary's Church. And he is, through his mother, a descendant of John of Gaunt. He's in the Beaufort line of John of Gaunt's children and grandchildren and descendants. And that means he's a descendant of the third wife, Catherine Swinford, who had originally been the mistress. The children had been made legitimate after the fact. So there are some questions about how much the Beaufort descendants are entitled to inherit because they were originally not legitimate. Now they are. So there's some questions about that. But in any case, we have young Henry Tudor. He's born at Pembroke. That's his first home. It's a sanctuary. And throughout his early life, because of the Wars of the Roses, Henry Tudor was at the mercy of political forces. So in 1460, Edward IV comes to the throne. Henry is taken from his mother, and he is made a ward of William Herbert, a strong Yorkist supporter. And Herbert probably intends to marry Henry Tudor to his daughter, possibly. Well, as you know, things change. And Henry VI comes back and his forces regain control. So at that point, Henry Tudor is taken away. He comes to court. He's honored. He's a relative of the king. Everything is great. Well, Henry VI doesn't hold the throne very long that time. Edward IV comes back. And at that point, Jasper Tudor realizes that Henry is in danger. Both of them are. And they go to Brittany. They're heading to France. They end up in Brittany. And Henry Tudor at this time is 14, and he would spend the next 14 years as a political exile in Brittany and France. Now, this is not the typical upbringing for a king. So here you have this Welch man, young man. He has spent very little time, maybe a day, probably not even overnight in the English court. And now he spends the next 14 years as an exile. And mainly, he's trying to stay alive. It's not the typical royal upbringing where you're learning languages and you're learning the history and you're learning how to be a knight and how to be a warrior. No, he's just trying to stay alive. He is developing a sense of 
of who, how you decide who you can trust, which is pretty much nobody or almost nobody. You certainly trust Jasper, but he's able by his wits to survive. And all this is going on. Edward is staying on the throne, Edward the Fourth, and things look pretty good. England settling down and then surprisingly, because he's not really very old, Edward IV dies in 1483. People expect Edward V, his oldest son, to take the throne. You know everything changes around that because it turns out a couple months after Edward IV dies, it's Richard III who's crowned King of England. Now, at this point, Margaret Beaufort and Elizabeth Woodville seem to be colluding a bit to get Henry Tudor back, to have him marry Elizabeth of York, and to have them claim the throne. The first attempt is thwarted, but they try again. Henry tries again to return to England with an army. It's an army of mercenaries, French mercenaries, some Lancastrians, even a few Yorkist malcontents. They land at Mill Bay. They gather support as they march through Wales and march into England. And they are now marching to meet Richard III. So it's 1483. They're coming to Bosworth. And Richard III is one of the best military strategists in royal history. He is a brilliant warrior. He was Edward IV's right-hand man, and for good reason. And here's Henry Tudor, who has not been brought up to be a military leader, who is untrained and untried, and his troops are not well-equipped, especially in comparison to the forces of the king. There's really no chance that they will succeed. But thanks to Richard's actions, when he decides very dynamically, and he's determined to end this battle immediately, and he sees Henry cut off from his troops, and he rides right at him, and then the Stanleys decide they'll go ahead and support Henry Tudor, and their forces come in at just the right moment. And much to everyone's surprise, Henry Tudor's forces prevail. Richard himself is killed, and... It appears, or there's at least a legend, that Lord Stanley gets the crown that's fallen off Richard's helmet and puts it on Henry's head right there on the battlefield for sort of an ad hoc coronation. So suddenly, this young man who's fighting, remember, under that Welsh dragon banner is now the King of England. Well, of course, he wants a real coronation, not just a battlefield coronation. So he goes to Westminster Abbey, and despite the reputation of Henry VII as being, you know, miserly and money-grabbing and not willing to spend money on anything, let me just remind you that in his early reign, he spent a lot of money. That coronation was lavish and extensive. He really patterned it after the coronation of Edward IV and, in fact, had his robes made by the same person. He really leaned into the idea of being an English king, even though basically no one knew him. He'd been in exile for 14 years. He wasn't from England. He wasn't from the English court. It was just an unknown person. So he really had to create this image of himself as a king. So after the coronation, he was not crowned alongside Elizabeth of York, as some of the Yorkists had expected him to be. No, no, he was crowned on his own. 
after his coronation, he married Elizabeth of York to show that she's supporting his reign. She's not the cause of his reign. In any case, she's supporting it. They get married and she gets pregnant very quickly. In fact, so quickly that it might have happened before the wedding, because just eight months later, she is ready to have a child. Now, Henry is really leaning into this notion of the dragon of Wales and this legend of King Arthur returning. Remember that prophecy with the red dragon. So he arranges for Elizabeth to come to Winchester, which is a location associated with King Arthur. So the prince, he's so sure it's a boy, will not be born in London, but in fact in Winchester. And it is a boy. He manages to produce a son straight away. No other Tudor monarch is so successful in immediately producing a son. So he has this legendary baby of course. He names him Arthur. He is going to fulfill the prophecy under the banner of the red dragon of the new King Arthur. And in fact, if you go to Winchester today and go to the Great Hall, you will see a beautiful legendary round table. And you will notice that it is painted in the Tudor colors of green and white. And right in the middle is a large and very prominent Tudor rose. So Prince Arthur has arrived on cue. He is celebrated as the new Arthur and everything looks possible at this point. Henry's whole plan is about to be realized. This unknown man who's fought under the banner of the red dragon has produced a son, a new King Arthur and everything looks great. He's tapped into his Welsh heritage. He's become King of England. He's married the English Rose, Elizabeth of York, and everything looks great. Now, we know that it doesn't quite work out that way. That in fact, Prince Arthur dies before his father and does not succeed ever as King Arthur. That in fact, Henry VII is succeeded by his second son, Prince Henry, who, although he had the similar background and upbringing, had not been imbued with this legend of King Arthur that Henry Tudor had worked so hard for his first son. However, Henry Tudor did succeed in creating that dynasty that would last more than a hundred years and that would reshape England and Europe and the world. And even today, that red dragon upon a field of green and white is the flag of Wales as a reminder of one of the sons of Wales who came to pretty extraordinary heights when you consider his upbringing. And that dragon features prominently not only in his own coat of arms, but in the arms of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, those two most famous tutors who really left their mark on our view of history. And so it turns out that Henry Tudor and the legend of King Arthur and the spirit of Wales all contributed to how we view Tudor history and royal history 
England and in Britain, and actually throughout the early modern period. So thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this look at Henry Tudor, King Arthur, and the Spirit of Wales. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics as we cruise through history this summer. I so appreciate your listening. Please consider leaving a rating, subscribing, maybe sharing with a friend, and even becoming a patron. I would really appreciate it. And let's keep shaking up history together. (music) 